What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast about all things nerdy, fun, historical, mythological, you name it. We slice it up and dice it up and break it down to its littlest parts and its biggest parts. And I, like always, am very excited to be here today. I am excited to be here as well because we have now transitioned to a spoken word slam poetry podcast, according to Derek's intro. Well, you know what? I couldn't be more pumped to talk about what we have to talk about today. Me I really too. I'm excited every week. This week I'm exceptionally excited. <laughs> so, as you all know, dear listeners, and if you're new to the podcast and this is your first episode and you heard the intro and intro music, our quest is for the perfect story. And sometimes in the hunt for this perfect story, Laurel and I are known to get really deep into the weeds and we're known to dive very deep and we're known to really look at the different elements and components. Every once in a while, you encounter a narrative where you have to pause, step back and look, and realize it is the perfect story. Wow. Or as close as you can get to perfection. Lightning in a bottle, for sure. Tonight, we're going to talk about that. But before I tell you what that is, suspense. There is a perfect story that is my life, and that perfect story begins when I met my wife, Laurel, now wife, Laurel. That's me. That's you. Yeah. So we took some time off because Laurel and I went from being engaged to being married, and the lens that I approach our subject today is getting married, man, is a awesome big deal. It was something that I never thought would mean as much as it has meant to me. And I wanted to approach what we talk about tonight from the lens of just getting married to my best friend, my lover, the most beautiful woman in the whole world, my princess, Laurel, and to celebrate that love and what kind of a story resonates with this deep need as a human to be connected to other humans and to feel love and feel gratitude. And I think this story that we're going to talk about tonight does it in a way I'd say better than any other known to me. And I include that in all forms of media, whether they are oral tradition, written word, uh, poetry, music, 
This film that we're talking about tonight, to me, is the love story that shaped what it means for me to understand what it means to love. I, too, wish to celebrate my marriage to my best friend, my partner, my podcast co-host, my farm boy, poor, poor and perfect, with eyes like the sea after a storm. If you haven't figured out what we're going to talk about tonight yet, through the lens of having just uh, gone through a wedding ritual and ceremony, we're going to be talking about 1987's The Princess Bride, directed by Rob Reiner and written by the uh, the author of the source material book, William Goldman. Uh, it was lightning in a bottle, like I just said, uh, something that was a combination of many genres a smashing together of cast members and writers and directors and uh, elements that never would have fit side by side without such a perfect alignment of the stars. And that's kind of like what a relationship, a good relationship is, an alignment of some kind of stars. So we're here to talk about this story of love, this story of revenge, this story of hope, honor, miracles, with each other. Awesome. So let's dive into it. Some fun facts about The Princess Bride. It was almost a movie like most movies that never got made. Um, you mentioned William Goldman as the author of it. He was trying to get the book published for over a decade. It was originally the book was published. Pardon me. He was trying to get the movie right. adaptation made um, after it got published in 1973. It wasn't until 1987 that it actually got made. And that was because Rob Reiner reached out to him being like, hey, I read your book and I liked it a lot. Have you ever tried to make it a movie? And he had been trying to make it a movie ever since he wrote it. Um, it is uh, a movie that did very poorly in the box office. It was not marketed well. And it wasn't until it hit in um, at the time you would go to these things called movie rental stores blockbusters blockbuster videos yeah i know if you're if you're a younger one of our fans you may not know what we're talking about but people used to go to stores pay someone three to five dollars borrow their video yep their movie on a tape and then take it and watch it and then return it the next day. And they usually only had one or two of the tapes so if they were checked out you couldn't have it it was like a library but you had to pay for it Absolutely. And that's how it worked. And and it was in the word of mouth marketing in the video rental where an entire generation got charmed by this movie, myself included. We rented yeah. it one day as a family and watched it. My whole family loved it. And I was a little boy. I remember for the first time ever watching this movie when it ended, I had the feeling that like, I wish this movie wasn't over. Yeah. Which was a, I was too young to realize how much I wanted to just watch it again. But my mind, I'm like, man, I wish this didn't end. I wish this kept going. That's how much I loved it and how much I enjoyed it. You kind of had the moment that the grandson has where he says, maybe you could come over and read it to me again sometime. Absolutely. It was purely and utterly inconceivable yeah. how much I loved it. I had a similar experience. My grandparents, uh, often would give us little gifts whenever they came to visit from uh, Baton Rouge. And my grandparents came down one time with two VHSs, one for me and one for my sister Hannah. My sister Hannah got a VHS of the musical Into the Woods, which is also very important to me. 
and I got a VHS of The Princess Bride. And I was like a six-year-old kid or whatever, however old I was, and I was blown away. I was like, I love every everything about this movie, from the uh, swashbuckling pirates to the beautiful maidens to the love story to the adventure. It had something for everyone and everything in it for me. And uh, if you haven't seen the movie, consider this your spoiler wall. But, I mean, the movie came out in 1987. If you haven't seen it, yo, check yourself. Look at yourself in the mirror and go watch The Princess Motherfucking Bride. If you're listening to this podcast, I guarantee you'll love it. Right? Um, And so consider this your spoiler wall. So the lens that I wanted to approach this from was the lens of understanding marriage. Because love is a key theme in this movie. True love. So I would like to kick it off there. And and well, actually, let me back this up. And I want to ask you a question. Why do you think The Princess Bride is a classic? Okay, great. That's a great question. I think there are a lot of ways that you can answer it. Um, For me, I think a huge part of why it's a classic is because it it melded so many um, genres and satirized so many genres so well that it had truly something in it that could relate to any audience member. Uh, whether that was young boys or young girls or adults, it has sat better with me than almost any movie that I remember from my childhood. And it gets better as an adult as you start to understand the jokes. But that doesn't take away from enjoying it as a child. I also think that even though it's a satire, a lot of it is played totally straight. You have Wallace Shawn in this like totally outrageous role for him but then you have Andre the Giant, who has no guile about him whatsoever. So I think we all know who Andre the Giant is, but tell everyone, who, who is Wallace Shawn? Wallace Shawn is a fantastic playwright, writer, and actor um, who you'll remember who plays Vincini in um, The Princess Bride. Uh, and he's also well known for a, a play that he wrote that he adapted into a movie called My Dinner with Andre. Not Andre the Giant, but it's excellent intellectual meditation and really interesting dialogue. Um, But super smart guy who took on this really crazy out there role that was originally uh, kind of ideated for Danny DeVito. So that kind of tells you how wrong he was for that role on paper. It came to life on the screen. And that's what a lot of The Princess Bride is, something that feels so weird and so unexpected that totally comes to life. But yeah, that's that's a huge part of it for me is that it's satire and yet it's so sincere. There's so much heart to the characters. There's so much uh, emotional investment in the drama that you are laughing until you pee and also like feeling totally warmed and uh, comforted by the movie. I love that because I think of when I rewatch The Princess Bride, <clears throat> pardon me, which we did several times in the preparation of this podcast, I keep thinking, and I kept this private to share with you while we record. I kept thinking about Deadpool in an interesting wow. way. Okay. So it really felt to me like I was watching when I watched the princess bride, what Deadpool wanted to be. This is so interesting because I, th- I thought about Deadpool today. It just crossed my mind. And then I was like, Oh, I'm so glad we're going to talk about the princess bride. Tonight. Well, let me let me preface yeah, this please as explain. to why. Yeah, because, but I think we're on the same page. Because Deadpool is a you know comic book franchise 
bent on burning down the comic book franchise. And in its place, both Deadpool 1 and Deadpool 2 attempt to be about something other than just burning it down. In Deadpool 1, it's attempt to be about the romance between Deadpool and uh, the character who becomes his wife. I forget her name right now. Vanessa? Um, either way, sorry, I'm blanking. And Deadpool 2, two which is about... Now that he found his love, let's deconstruct the comic book genre and then put onto it a, a movie about family. But what The Princess Bride does differently, and I would argue why it is a classic versus Deadpool being a sort of flash-in-the-pan fun franchise, not insulting Deadpool fans or Deadpool at all, love Deadpool, have a Deadpool coffee mug. But Princess Bride attempts to deconstruct the fairy tale it attempts to tear down the swashbuckler and it pokes fun at traditional Hollywood versions of what it means to be a leading man, what it means to be a leading lady, what it means to be a bad guy. But in its place, as it burns these things down, it builds something beautiful and in its strong. place. Yeah. Something that will tell I has lasted now multiple generations. And I predict will be a classic for many more generations to come because you mentioned that it is a satire, and at its heart, that's so true. This is a movie poking fun at traditional fantasy norms. So the giant could just crush the head of the rogue he's trying to crush, but instead they have a polite little chat while they wrestle and uh, the giant loses. You know, there is a uh, scene in which I think is one of, if not the best sword fighting scenes in all cinema. Oh, yeah. True fact, the actors did not use any stunt doubles in a single frame. They had no experience and came in and learned how to sword fight for that scene and did it all themselves. Between the man in black slash Wesley and Indigo Montoya. And all the while, all they're doing is complimenting each other, discussing sword fighting strategy, and at the very end of this sword fight, which should always cultivate in most movies of the good guy killing the bad guy. Right. At the end of it, what happens? Wesley goes, I would sooner destroy a stained glass window than an artist such as yourself. He compliments the person trying to kill him and spares his life, inverting and satirizing the tropes of what the, sw- the swashbuckler genre should be. But in, it, in its place, what does it build? The start of a friendship right. between both Man in Black Wesley and Fezzik, or Man in Black Wesley and Indigo Montoya. So it's like Deadpool in that it is a deconstructionist, and it came from let's tear down the standards and let's tear down the norms that made these genre films successful. But rather than just purely tearing it down, it built something on top of it. Yeah, let's put something stronger in its place. Let's, you know, dig up everything in the garden and plant something there that won't freeze over in the winter. And that's why I think I keep coming back to it time and time again. Yeah. And the reason that I do is because there is something there. It is not just destroying something, it is destroying while building, which I think is a lesson um, that I personally take as someone that likes thinking of himself as a gadfly who has a little Deadpool or man in black in me who likes kind of upending what people expect and think. Yeah, sure. That just doing that on its face value isn't enough. If you are successful in tearing something down, you also have the responsibility 
if you want to tell the perfect story to build something in its place. I love it. I love that as kind of a jumping off point or a lens to uh, why the Princess Bride is so successful at remaining in our hearts. I think that's that's beautiful. So I'd like to, to get into some of the meat and potatoes here. Yeah, let's do so it. So the movie is called The Princess Bride. So we get a sense from the title what it's about. It is about a princess about to get married, presumably to become the princess bride to the queen. And in that, we have the character Buttercup. So one of the more fantastic things that the princess bride as a fairy tale does is standard fairy tale, think Disney canon, is about a princess who lives somewhere not next to like the main castle, little on the fringes, a little poor, but with a great heart, finally meets the prince. They fall in love, they get married, and they live happily ever after. Right. End fairy tale. Standard formula, and it's great. The Princess Bride upends that in its satirical notes, in that we find the the princess-to-be is in love with someone else who gets murdered by pirates. The prince comes, but doesn't sweep her off her feet. They don't get to live happily ever after. Right out of the gate in the very first, you know, third of this movie, it upends the standard fairy tale trope. It puts us in that familiar setting. Most of the movie was shot in uh, England, you know, and you get this feel that you're in this medieval world. Right. And that you get the sense that you're in this fairy tale, but it starts at the place of saying this will not be the standard normal fairy tale. Absolutely. Um, It's telling that the uh, quote unquote courtship of Humperdinck, the prince, and uh, princess-to-be Buttercup uh, happens off-screen. We are told by a narrator that he plucks her out of obscurity, out of being a commoner, to marry her, and then he presents her to uh, the country, and it's like, this is the woman who is going to be at my side. I'm going to marry her. But there is absolutely no illusion about romance. There are no illusions about any kind of love there. We are either led to believe that he was looking for a commoner so that he could get some brownie points from the rest of his subjects and he saw the prettiest one that he could find, or we have to imply that there is some kind of political strategy motivating this union. So that's a very telling um, way to uh, subvert that traditional fairy tale narrative of like Cinderella or Snow White where the prince falls in love with the commoner at first sight and is like, I'll do anything to marry this woman, et cetera. And it got me thinking of, well, you know, I just got married. What is marriage really like? So a thing that the grandfather, Peter Falk's character says is that the prince has the right by the law of the land to choose his bride. Um, A paraphrase, and that might not be the direct quote. Yeah. So it got me digging a little backwards and like, right, I just got married. How long have people been getting married for? What does marriage mean? You know, where does marriage come from? And is there a sort of grounding principle in how Humperdinck chooses um, Buttercup to be his bride? Turns out, absolutely. So as far back as any historian, archaeologist, anthropologist can tell, from the agricultural revolution on, humans have had some sort of a marriage ritual. Agricultural revolution can be roughly dated around 10,000 B.C., 
few thousand years later, we start seeing the semblance of civilization. And then we can say for certain, as soon as we had our earliest true, what we consider civilization, you know, think of ancient Sumerians and Mesopotamians, there's evidence of marriage. But marriage in the this ancient context was always about a few different basic principles. Um, one, it was about a man designating a woman to have his heirs. So there's no room for romance in this version. It's saying, hey, this from the children of this woman are my legitimate children. If the man has children outside of that woman, they're not the legitimate children. So it's a way to set up, pardon me, a transfer of property generationally, as well as a transfer of property from man to man in the woman being the property that gets transferred. Now, it sounds fucked up, but that's how it was. Right, yeah. And in this, there were uh, two basic different types, where a man was expected to find someone within their culture, tribe, sect, um, you know, whatever. They had to marry one of them, you know, in order for the, the woman to be able to give the man heirs to transfer property to, or the man was expected to go outside of the tribe. Right. outside of the sect, out someone that was different from their closest, um, you know, relatives or allies. Now, the second option was done for strategic and political purposes. You know, I would marry someone that's not part of my tribe. So think of, I'm a rich, ancient Hebrew. I might make sure my daughter marries a rich, ancient Egyptian. Why? Because I need to secure trade routes with the Egyptians. Okay. So my yeah. daughter marries someone who's not Jewish, and I'm making all of this up. I'm, so, you know, this is just as a way to give a concrete example. This existed for a long fucking time. Um, in particular, what we now consider the Near East or Middle East and what we consider the West. Um, and this is how marriages were arranged. The people getting married, the man and the woman, didn't matter if they liked each other. Right. Didn't matter if they knew each other. Right. They didn't have any choice. They had to do what they were told. Um, and even in when it wasn't about power politics or it wasn't about the wealthy elites, if you weren't a wealthy elite and you were a commoner, you might need some extra hands on the farm. You might need some extra, you know, people uh, to help you out with your daily duties. So marriages were still exchanged father to father in order to secure the best matches, whether within the group or outside of the group. Um, in the ancient world, divorce was also common. And divorce was about a man. If he was upset with his wife because she couldn't produce children, was allowed to divorce her more often than not and find another wife who could potentially deliver him children. Um, in this cold sort of look uh, marriage that we have, we get into the medieval practice and there's now the influence of Catholicism. Catholicism turned marriage out of a more contract between heads of households, heads of um, estates or heads of societies and kingdoms and into the realm of the, sac of the, the sacred Marriage became a sacred r r ritual in which when you did it, you got the blessing from God. And that kind of changed things in a few ways that some were good and some were bad. So it was no longer acceptable for a man to have outside lovers other than the wife. 
right? Because that was a sin. So men had to be more faithful. Previous to that, men could go around banging whoever they wanted, <laughs> and you know, women couldn't, but men could right, predominantly. And in uh, other ways, you know, things got got worse. Divorce became completely and totally wrong. You were never allowed to terminate a marriage, no matter the reason or, or cost. And sometimes marriages should be terminated, you know, through the power of divorce. It's in this medieval sort of world that I think I look at the lens of Humperdinck and Buttercup. So Humperdinck is looking to go outside of his tribe. What is his tribe? The nobles of his land, you know. Of so, Florin, yeah. Of Florin. Instead of, you know, maybe marrying a priest, or a, I'm sorry, a princess of Gilda, he elevates a commoner outside of his tribe to marry. He has the power as the prince to pick whoever he wants to marry. It is his choice. Um, his father, we see, is sort of adult-minded and senile. So normally in a medieval world, the father would decide this for the prince. But since the father is a little more senile, the prince can pretty much do what he wants, and he's ruling the country in his father's name anyway. So he picks the princess, Princess Buttercup. He does so, as we learn throughout the, the course of the movie, in line with Machiavellian medieval politics. Yeah, it's revealed later that his motives are much more nefarious than forging an alliance or getting in the good graces of his uh, subjects. He's war profiteering. He plans to marry Buttercup, murder her, frame Gilder and the people of Gilder so that his country will go to war with them so that he can profit from that war. So it's a very um, kind of Byzantine plot that's happening here. But but if you think about it from many different perspectives, Humperdinck wouldn't usually be the hero. This were Game of, of Thrones. We'd be applauding Humperdinck for his ability to play the game. He knows he can't go to war without the support of his people. So he elevates a commoner only to murder the commoner to get the war that he wants so that he can conquer his enemy. Right. So if this were Game of Thrones, we'd love him. I mean, if it were Cinderella, we'd love him plucking a commoner from obscurity to give her a beautiful life in a castle. Uh, you know, we would overlook the nefarious motives and say, oh, he can see past nobility and see the true beauty in people of lower means. He would be a hero in a fairy tale. He'd be a hero in a medieval romance. But here's the crux of the princess bride peeling under the onion, looking over the hood, going down <laughs> above the surface, whatever you want to say. I'm being silly. Yeah. Um, so that makes it so amazing. Humperdinck's the fucking bad guy. Yeah. Right. Humperdinck is not the hero. And the ritual of marriage is not the mechanism that supports, sustains, and creates true love. And the story is about true love. Now, you don't have marriage being about love until the Victorian era or the 19th century is when it changed, when it was expected for people to be in love before they got married. Thank God I live in the era post that. And that's very much thanks to Victoria and Albert themselves. Uh, Victoria's wedding actually influenced most of what modern weddings look like in, uh, in Europe and the Americas. Um, They're all descended from exactly what Victoria did at her wedding, like wearing white and having a cake, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think it's interesting that you bring that up, uh, that we don't get true love as a basis for marriage until Victoria, because 
Going back to what I was saying about this mishmash of genres that takes place in The Princess Bride, what do we have side by side? We have the medieval romance in the sort of vein of Chrétien de Troyes' stories of uh, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, uh, and all of these 19th century uh, romantic uh, stories that are based on that tradition of the medieval romance that usually have very little to do with marriage, and when they do, they have to do with extramarital affairs. And then we also have the genre of the swashbuckler, which is also a 19th century coming out of uh, romanticism genre that is born of this kind of masculine ideal of men of honor, even if they're roguish types, men who are on redemption paths, but who can wield a sword and who can get down and dirty to save the day and be the all-around good guy. These are the two narratives that are thrown up side by side. And what do we have? A movie called The Princess Bride, where you would expect that it ends in a wedding, like any good comedy. You would expect that the wedding or the marriage ceremony is the culminating affair, and yet it's really just about true love in the style of the medieval romance, an extramarital affair, and the swashbuckling hero, and how they get away from the marriage ceremony, the traditional marriage ceremony of economic convenience or political strategy or war profiteering. It's how they escape those confines and find a way for true love to prevail over this oppressive ceremony, which is fascinating to think about as we are reflecting on what marriage means today. And it, it gives me a whole new way to watch this movie and a whole new way to contextualize how is Buttercup a princess bride in this movie if she is only Humperdinck's bride and she's only Humperdinck's princess? Why would that be her title? So that's how I watch this movie and say, how through action, how through adventure, does Buttercup become her own princess bride? How do Wesley and Buttercup seal their union outside of marriage? How is their adventure like a marriage or like a wedding. So that's kind of something that helped me watch this movie in context. Oh yeah. Well, I am uh, I am intrigued. So tell me, elaborate more on that final point. How is Wesley and Buttercup? What is their relationship or I'm sorry, how is the relationship marriage like? Yeah, so this is something that I was I was really reflecting on. I was like in what ways does Wesley and Buttercup's union echo a marriage uh, was kind of a question that I was asking just as an exercise uh, to kind of closer watch the movie. And so what I did was I compared the you know actions that they go through. I compared the adventure of Wesley and Buttercup to find each other, to lose each other, and to find each other again, lose each other again, and find each other again, to a marriage ceremony. Um, which was really interesting, and I don't at all think that William Goldman or Rob Reiner were comparing the beats of their movie to this, but I think it's an interesting template to put onto the movie. And you know, so, I'm intrigued, yeah. So what happens in a wedding? There's a lot of traditions that fly around, um, but the, the basic beats generally stay the same, at least with a modern wedding. Uh, that is sort of contemporary to when The Princess Bride was written and made. It starts with the bride and the groom being separated, 
right? Not seeing each other the day of the wedding, uh, which is kind of hearkening back to arranged marriages when they didn't want the bride to see or the groom to see the bride until she was walking down the aisle to decrease his chances of running away in case she wasn't cute um, and all kinds of other patriarchal things. But Wesley and Buttercup have to be separated, sight unseen, for months, years? It's years, right? Five years. It's five years that they haven't seen each other. And yet the moment that they do come face to face and Wesley is finally unmasked and says the words that mean so much to Buttercup, as you wish, which really mean I love you, they come face to face and they kiss and they embrace. And even though they've been apart for a little while, whether that's five years, whether that's their whole lives, or whether that's one day, this moment of coming together is kind of like the bride walking down the aisle and the groom seeing her for the first time. It's magical. In a wedding, you'll often have opening remarks from the officiant or the, uh, the celebrant or the priest, whoever is performing the ceremony. When we first hear this movie introduced, we first hear about who Wesley and Buttercup are, we have a narrator who is kind of an omniscient priest-like figure over the story. He's the grandfather. To, the grandfather, Peter Falk, who introduces them and tells us exactly how they know each other, how their love grew, tells us the story of what their love is. And then we have vows. When they find each other again in the ravine, they echo things they've always said to each other, like, as you wish, like, I'll always come for you. I will never doubt again. There will never be a need. These are statements of intent. These are promises that they make to each other, which are the form that vows take, whether those are pre-written, I take you to heaven to hold in sickness and in health till death do us part. Wesley says, death cannot stop true love. All of these things that they say to each other are actionable statements that echo what happens in a marriage ceremony, which I thought was a really beautiful way for these two characters to reunite. They immediately start stating their intent. I will never leave you. I will always come for you. Death cannot stop true love. So what happens right after they find each other in the ravine? Wesley and Buttercup fire swamp. run into the fire swamp. They take each other's hands and they rush right into danger, which in a lot of ways feels like a metaphor for what happens when you process back down the aisle um, after getting married. You take each other's hands and you say, whatever is coming, we are going head on into it. And you guys can follow us if you want, but that's where we're going and we're not going to stop. People pelt you with rice, but yeah. <laughs> you end up making your way to the other side. So kind of diverging from what I'm saying about the, the marriage ceremony and the ceremony th through uh, words, I think Buttercup and Wesley march into a ceremony of action, a ceremony through action into the fire swamp. And it's really important that the fire swamp is divided into these three terrors, uh, which are the flame spurts, the lightning sand, and the ROUSs. Rodents of unusual size? I don't think they exist. Man, but this could easily devolve into quotes. Continue. Easily we could just quote the whole movie. But here's kind of... Here's kind of what I'm thinking about the fire swamp and what it means for true love and marriage and why they have to go through it together. The flame spurts, fire is often a metaphor for passion or a metaphor for violence. 
Uh, it's also something that burns bright and then sputters out. It's something that can hurt you, but it's also something that can totally ensnare you and enchant you. It's passion, it's sex, it's violence, it's power, it's ephemerality. It's here and then it's gone. It has a lot to do with that flame, that metaphorical flame that people talk about with long-term relationships and how do you keep the flame going? How do you keep the fire? Uh, marriage is often uh, considered something that puts the flame out because you're with someone for so long, whether or not that flame could ever possibly last forever. So that's a, a question leading into marriage is how will you tend this flame? How bright will this flame burn how important is the flame to your relationship? So we have a, con a context of marriage here in the fire swamp. Then we have the lightning sand. This is a more interesting kind of metaphor for me, I think, than the flame spurts even, because being in a marriage, being in a long-term partnership, means you will see people at their highs and at their lows. It means that you have to be ready when your partner spirals. You have to be ready for depression, sadness, you have to be ready for feelings of loss, feelings of lostness. You have to be ready when your partner feels like they can't breathe to dive in and pull them out or just to dive in and stay there with them. And that feels like a, a, a part of marriage that isn't always talked about. Diving in to save your partner from literal lightning sand or figurative lightning sand. I also just want to interject and throw something else out there at the lightning sand, if you'll permit me please, to interrupt. Please, 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 please. The lightning sand also can serve as a type of baptismal rebirth. Yeah, I was thinking movie. about that too, because that's the second time that Buttercup is submerged in something in the movie. In the first one, it's when she, uh, yeah, when she like in dives the, into the water for the eels. Yeah, and this one, she gets submerged in the lightning sand, but she comes out together with Wesley. So it's a sacrament, uh, and they they take it together. And also, a lot of marriage rituals will involve sand in some. Form. Yeah, like a sand ceremony. If you have a unity ceremony of some kind in your um, your wedding, one of those might be pouring different colors of sand into a jar. That's a really good point. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, continue. Then the last terror of the fire swamp, which we mentioned before, I don't think they exist. The R.O.U.S.'s, rodents of unusual size. The fact that they say, I don't think they exist, says more to me than anything. Rodents of unusual size. Gross, in-your-face things that you pretend don't exist until they are biting you on your neck. These are holding your partner's hair back while they vomit or helping them through food poisoning. This is like rubbing lotion on their feet when they have a foot fungus. This is shaving each other's backs. Like this is the gross stuff that you pretend doesn't exist, but you have to recognize does exist. You have to accept about each other and you also have to cherish about each other. And in a true love, you will cherish those things about each other. Every little gross, pussy thing about each other, you will cherish. Um, so there's no point in saying, I don't think they exist. You have to embrace them. I so marriage, love that. Marriage is a fire swamp to me, and that's their ceremony through action rather than words. I love that. I Can I add a few things? Please. I also like the fire swamp as the last 
natural world obstacle that they have to go through together. And yeah. that think of marriage or at least as true love, the union of two people in love as a conquering emotion and not conquering in the, like I claim this land for me because I've conquered it. Conquering this. You have a flag. Yes. As an overcoming great adversity. Yeah. Out of the wild, out of the unnatural or out of the natural dangers and into the more civilized form. You know, oh, very interesting. And conquering nature in, and not in the, you know, like we need to build cities everywhere in nature, conquering nature, but conquering nature in the respect that these two characters are lost in the wild and they come out together more civilized and more united. And we see in the end of that, at the end of the fire swamp ordeal, we see the the prince with Count Rugen, the six six fingered man, all of the archers surround them, and we have you know Wesley and Humperdinck ready to throw it down. And what does you know Buttercup do? She makes a very civilized choice to de-escalate, yeah, to save her lover's life, to go back to civilization after they came out of this wild wilderness. That's so interesting, and also harkens back to medieval romance. Harkens back to uh, kind of these Shakespearean. Um, pastoral plays where in order to work out shit from court, the court would go to the woods in a Midsummer's Night Dream, in a Midsummer Night's Dream, or as you like it, something like that. You would go to the wild to work your shit out and then go back to court. So it very much calls upon that kind of literature. Um, I, I think love it. It's also interesting that in the fire swamp, as they're listing the terrors, Wesley is literally like, if we can do this, we can do anything. If we can conquer this one thing, we can conquer any obstacle in our path, whether that's Count Rugen and Humperdinck and, you know, horrible civilized war profiteers, or that's the bumps that come up in a marriage. Absolutely. I also like how the movie plays with the number three. Ooh. Um, and it does so many ways. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. after we see Humperdinck, I'm sorry, after we see, you know, Buttercup and Wesley separated, when he goes to try to make his fortune and he gets murdered by pirates, um, that's when we start seeing the number three mattering. So there's Vincini, uh, Fezzik, and Indigo, the three, you know, sort of outlaws that kidnap her, right? When Wesley has to then save her from those three, he has to defeat each one. And then he goes to the fire swamp, which has its three challenges. Yeah. Um, you know, and so he has to defeat the, as you mentioned them, those three, we can think of even there is count Rugen, Prince Humperdinck and the albino as the servant. Right. And then there's, you know, count Rugen, um, Prince Humperdinck and the gatekeeper. Yeah. As another three, we have then, um, Indigo, Fezzik, Wesley need to turn team up. As a three. Yes. So zoom out and you have the three, you, you have three challenges that Wesley must conquer within um, each stage of the movie. But then you have these three stages that he must conquer. So he has to conquer the rogues. He has to conquer the fire swamp. And then he has to conquer the court. And Buttercup has to do the same once. She has to conquer the rogues in her own way. Mm-hmm. She has to conquer the fire swamp. She has to conquer the court. 
So I think in structuring the thing, the, the movie in three acts, yeah. three obstacles, three villains, three heroes, I think it harkens to a logical, symmetrical structure that resonates in fairy tales. Absolutely. And resonates and in myth. mythology yeah. and resonates so well. So doing it that way gives it this feeling that like you're watching something timeless because so many great stories, whether they're in from the Bible, not insulting Christians, but a lot of things happen in threes. So if you think of it as a story, so the, the threes that are there from the three witches that Perseus yeah. has to conquer to the three Gorgons that we talked about in our witches episode, that this is a, a number that comes up time and time again in myth, in religion in storytelling that structuring everything in threes gives it that sort of, you know, this story has always been told and will always be told. Yeah. Yeah. It comes back to, you know, the triangle being a powerful shape in architecture and design. It's like this foundation of three acts or this foundation of three challenges feels structurally sound, feels like something that will always, always be part of us. I love that. And I think the ultimate moral that I take away from your metaphors on marriage and your meditations about Wesley and Buttercup reflecting on that point that you had, which I think was beautiful and brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing it. Is that a repudiation of marriage as an institution as good as in and of itself, just because you're married, you're doing something good. You're doing what society deems, right? Um, which is a viewpoint that has been held for thousands and thousands of years that marriage is the bedrock by which property is transferred. Workers are transferred generations are groomed and I don't look back at our previous human generations with condemnation. That was the systems that they came up with, but starting in the romantic era under queen Victoria, as we mentioned, where marriage became about love, where love is more important than property, where love is more important than workers on a farm or strategic alliance with another kingdom is really the, the, the marriage this movie is talking about. Well, even today, marriage is uh, celebrated as a, uh, you know, a recognition of love between people, but it's still how you get your upgraded tax status. It's still how uh, the government decides who can be in the hospital with you if you're, you know, in, in pain, if you're in danger. Uh, it's still a political uh, debate that happens about who can and can't get married because it affords you these certain advantages politically which I think is super interesting because even though it's been reframed as a celebration of love, it still is based in economic and political strategy to a certain extent. Oh, true. But I I don't think that's a lesser extent, but but I think what the princess bride is arguing is that, that that is wrong. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and then what do we see when we actually see a marriage ceremony literally happen between buttercup and humperdinck? We have, a, the, the priest is a buffoon, in, incompetent, and can't even say a sentence without making us all laugh. Yeah, so we have this satire at the first moment of what marriage really means. It what totally, kind of dream within a dream it, it is? Totally mocks the totally mocks it. The, the the ritual of the marriage, and then Humperdinck is in such a rush to make it happen. He has people storming the gates. He wants to get this war started. He's in such a rush that he has the priest skip ahead, skip over the vows, 
skip over the uh, you know the statement of intent, skip over the I do's, and skip directly to man and wife. He just says man and wife, not even I pronounce you man and wife, just man and wife. And this is a detail that Wesley brings up much later when Buttercup is desperate and so upset that she just married this man that she doesn't love that she's going to kill herself. Wesley says, did you say I do? If you didn't say I do, it never happened. And the thing that comes back most importantly is that a wedding cannot happen without the consent and the statement of intent from both parties. A wedding did not happen because you didn't look into his eyes and say, I will never doubt again. You didn't look into his eyes and say, I will always come for you. Those are the things that are required to make a true marriage or a union of true love from the eyes of the princess bride as a narrative because the statement of intent is the most important part of the ceremony itself. I think that's a great point. And I like that you point that out. Uh, Not to say point twice in the same sentence. (laughs) Um, That while they are breaking down and mocking the medieval marriage ritual, which is baked in religious Catholicism, and they have Peter Cook speaking with a horrible speech impediment, when at the end of it, when Buttercup and Wesley are united, and Wesley points out that she never said I do, she never made the statement of commitment, they're admitting that the ritual mattered. Right. They're They're admitting that the technicalities matter. Because if she did say I do, and that she and Humperdinck were married, you get the sense that Wesley would have to kill Humperdinck to free her from that. Right. Because this is a world without divorce, so it is till death do you part. And because that technicality doesn't happen, Wesley and Humperdinck, when they finally meet each other at the end of the movie, where Wesley's not you know, strapped into a tortured machine... He gets to spare his life because it matters if you go through it or not. Even when you deconstruct and make fun of it, there's still a fundamental respect for it in that moment that permits in the plot the ability to leave Humperdinck alive. The ability for a swashbuckling pilot to show mercy, which he shows at every level Wesley, that he can be merciful. He is merciful, you know? And so he makes sure that Humperdinck lives a long life alone with his cowardness. Yeah, I love it. I think that is great because though we can say that what matters the most about a marriage is the love between the two, there still should be respect for the idea that if you don't make the ritual complete, if you don't completely commit to it, if you don't do it correctly, It doesn't have the same weight. Symbols have meaning. Symbols have power. And when you don't participate in them, they aren't correct. And they, in effect, are null and void. I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, This kind of brings me to make a little bit of a pivot, if that's okay. Pivot. Because I wanted to talk about another way that the Princess Bride deconstructs traditional narratives. Um, and I want to focus in a little bit more on the swashbuckler genre to kind of round us out tonight, if that's good. Round it out, baby. So what is a swashbuckler? He buckles the swashes. He swashes, he buckles, it happens. Uh, A swashbuckler is, according to Wikipedia, 
a heroic archetype in European adventure literature that is typified by the use of a sword, acrobatics, and chivalric ideals. This archetype also became common as a film genre. So we have three things here. He has a sword, he does acrobatics, and he has chivalric ideas. Uh, So this guy obviously has one tool that he's really good with. He's very athletic, and it's important to him that he is a man of honor and that he is a man who uh, stands up for those who require his assistance. Um, This protagonist is generally not a pirate, generally not a drunk, usually not a Spaniard. And typically not a giant. (laughs) And typically not a giant. This is usually a golden boy. He's a good guy. Uh, in all senses of the word. And if he is a pirate or some kind of rogue, he is on a redemption arc. He is a, uh, he is a pirate who has seen the error of his ways and wants to go straight. So he's not Wesley, and he's not Inigo, typically in the genre. But we are doing satire here. Um, so how do we first come face-to-face with the swashbuckler in The Princess Bride, it happens in arguably one of the greatest sword fighting scenes in all of cinema, um, which I'm a huge fan of, you're a huge fan of, um, I think is absolutely fantastic. Like we said, the actors did all their own stunts. Um, but these two actors were working in the mold of Errol Flynn or working in the mold of Douglas Fairbanks and these other um, just incredibly iconic actors who were held up as the like pinnacle of American or European Western manliness, masculinity in their time, who are stars of these Three Musketeers and Robin Hood-style stories. But to hear William Goldman and Rob Reiner discuss casting The Princess Bride, you'll hear what they say when they look for a Wesley. They want him to be beautiful. You hear them say gorgeous. When they meet Carrie Elwes for the first time, they wanted a man who was just beautiful. And they saw this man and they said, he's so beautiful. Can he be funny? It was most important that they associated this traditionally feminine word with the good looks of the actor, which I think is kind of a fascinating way to be looking for this pinnacle of masculine ideals. Totally. And they made sure that he was comical before they made sure he could sword fight. Yeah. It was the most important thing is that he could a, B, this uh, kind of sensitive beauty, B, you know, make people laugh, and then they could teach him to sword fight. I think that's fantastic. Um, but this, this washbuckler, as an evolution of what was looked for as masculine idealism, is really interesting to me because, especially in the satire that is this sword fight that actually plays really straight compared to most parts of the movie, it it doesn't seem like the kind of masculinity that we prize today or that we prized at certain times in our history or prized in Hollywood at other times. They're not Cary Grant. They're not the bad boy type of Humphrey Bogart. They're not even Jimmy Stewart. They're a different type of masculinity that is not afraid to be beautiful, to be gorgeous, to be extremely sensitive in their relationships to one another, to be vulnerable, and to be graceful. So it's a really interesting thing, I think, to see on screen is two men being graceful, honorable, civil with each other, respectful, all of these things that 
may have once been considered an ideal of masculinity, but doesn't seem like the ideal of masculinity today. So that's something that always sticks out to me when rewatching The Princess Bride in 2018. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'd like to highlight a piece of textual evidence that I think might bring out your point and, and kind of bring my historical derrickness to it. So when, you know, Wesley is climbing the cliffs of insanity with Vincini, Andre the Giant, Indigo, and they cut the rope and Wesley's there climbing and Indigo hands him the rope. Wesley climbs the rope and I'm just rehashing this scene because it's so great. There's an interesting moment when Wesley and Indigo first are on even footing together, when they're finally seeing each other as equals, as two men. Wesley goes instantly for his sword. and Indigo goes, says, no, no, you're tired. Wait. Indicating that, A, he wants a fair fight. B, he's in no hurry to actually kill this person. E.g., he doesn't really want to kill this person. And B, you know, he wants to actually take a minute and just chat with this person. In this chat, Indigo discusses the story of how he came on his vengeance quest with the six-fingered man. And he does something truly fucking remarkable. Yep. Just absolutely remarkable. And having, when I first saw the movie, it didn't really clue into me. Same. You know, 20 years later, you know, thousands of pages of history books later, Indigo takes out his sword and hands it to Wesley. Let's pause and let's think about that for a little bit and what that means. Indigo has already told Wesley that he's going to kill him when he gets to the top, right? He's already said, I'm waiting here to kill you. He takes his only weapon, his greatest weapon, the best sword his father he ever made, and he hands it to his enemy. In battle, in combat, in war, when you hand your weapon to your enemy, you have surrendered. Yeah. You have given up. Before the fight even begins, Indigo hands him that. And what does Wesley do? He feels the balance. He feels the weight. He admires its beauty. And he hands it back. This symbolic act of him handing him the sword and the sword being handed back, I think, exemplifies your point that these are not the typical men that you see in stories who are just going to kill each other. Characters that I love, like Maximus from Gladiator. Yeah, I was going to say the Russell Crowe type is very right. much the anti-Wesley and Inigo. Absolutely. Characters that I love, like Batman. Yeah. You know, that would never do this. Superman would never just willfully take a piece of kryptonite so he could bond with Lex Luthor before they battle to the death. But yet Indigo does this. It is a total deconstruction of this standard archetype of the male hero in yep. the in the swashbuckler action sense and assumes that what if these two men could like each other, respect each other, and come to value and see each other as full, complete humans? And then what happens at the end of this combat? They both live. It subverts the idea that the combat was about death to begin with. It wasn't. It was about friendship. Yeah. It was about respect for the art of fencing. Yeah. You know, and in that way, I think that is your, just wanted to highlight that because how unique that is for two warriors, for one warrior to hand the other warrior a weapon before the battle even begins. That's perfect. I'm glad that you gave that as an example because that 
it, that one moment really does so much. It, a pirate and a drunk look at each other with a mutual assumption of trust, with a mutual assumption of honor, and say, I am an honorable man, and I believe this man to be honorable, and therefore I can trust him and I can be vulnerable with him. I can hand him my sword or I can tell him my deepest secret and my deepest shame. And that pays off for them in the end. Uh, you know, after they have had this beautiful fight scene uh, where they also let each other in on the little secrets that they've been pretending to be left-handed and it's they pull out great. all the stops uh, and Wesley spares Inigo in the end, once they have come together as a team without the kind of toxic force of Vincini, once they have come together to undermine Humperdinck, this bond of friendship that forms between them, between uh, Fezzik and Inigo, between these characters who normally should never have crossed each other's paths, but were brought together by the vicissitudes of fate, by crazy Sicilian men who are trying to help uh, you know, start a war, by whatever happened to pull them together, these characters find true friendship, vulnerability, and trust for one another. They end up leaning out of a window with Wesley's true love, and Fezzik is down there with four white horses, and he's like, guys, jump down. And that's kind of their processional. Uh, Wesley and Buttercup have found a party. They have found witnesses, because what does a wedding need other than two consenting parties to pledge their love to one another, it needs a witness. And they have found witnesses who have seen their darkest, who have seen their brightest, who have seen them fight, who have seen them lose, who have seen them win, fail, and they're going to ride off into the sunset together and seal all of that with a really baller kiss. I love it. Man, so much good things happening here. I mean, we haven't really even fully talked about Indigo. We haven't fully delved into Vincini. There's so much more to mine here. We haven't talked at all, really, about the grandfather and the grandson right. and what they mean. You touched on it briefly. Um, there's just so much good that that there are moments where you have to, you know, end where you began. And, like, we sought out this podcast to have a long form discussion about what makes stories magical and could there be a story that's perfect. And when it comes to the visual mediums, Princess Bride is as close as you can get. I, I tend to agree with you there. Um, the one character that I, I do wish we had gotten to spend a little more time on, but it, there's just not enough time is Buttercup herself. So I just wanted to throw a little um, uh, addendum on the end and say that even though this is a, a film that doesn't have many women characters at all, and most of the ones that are in it are crones who are just yelling kind of nonsense at the characters, Buttercup herself is a really interesting deconstruction of the damsel in distress of fairy tale and of medieval romance. And I just have to say, as a woman, how how satisfying it is to see a woman who was plucked out of being a commoner, who has this promise of a future married to a prince, but has decided instead that she loves a pirate. Look at the man who has pledged to marry her and call him a coward to his face. And even look at the man who she thinks killed her love 
who turns out to be Wesley himself and say, I wish you would die slowly cut into a thousand pieces. And there's something about that bravery um, and the the power that Buttercup commands in the traditional role of the damsel in distress that I say, right on, girl, fucking fight, burn that shit down. And until next time, guys, be kind. Not as you wish. Mm-hmm.